You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, I wanted to start today's episode talking about something that you have been thinking a lot about lately, the great AI fallacy. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? You gave a talk on it recently, right? Well, yeah, I gave a longer talk, but it sort of kicked off with this. I On last Friday, I was invited to give the distinguished lecture for information engineering here in Cambridge, which was great. But the start of the talk was what I call the great AI fallacy. And it really comes about by trying to look across what people are saying about artificial intelligence and trying to work out what they're claiming is different over previous waves of automation. So my feeling is that the common aspect to when the sort of general population talks about artificial intelligence is they seem to feel, uh, I've never seen this explicitly put, but I think it's always there implicitly, that this will be the first wave of automation that adapts to us rather than us adapting to it. So what do I mean by that? Well, in the past, we've automated physical labor in factories or transport with trains and cars. And each wave of automation, as highly flexible intelligence as ourselves, requires us to say, oh, okay, so now I have to turn up at this train station at a particular time, or I've got to turn up at work at this particular time with everyone else so that we can, in some sense, serve the machines. So the machines automate, but they're inflexible. So we are the flexible link that enables them to do their work. I think even you know computers, people felt with computers, well, would that be an end to filing and tedious work. And of course it wasn't. In fact, we probably all do more tedious work than ever before because of computers. Because if there's something we can't easily automate on the computer, we have to sit there copying and pasting things into spreadsheets or going through editing, fixing things. So there's we get more tedious work in order to make things fit into the computer. And I get the sense when I look at the underlying theme of what people seem to think about artificial intelligence, that people have a sense that this isn't true anymore, that because we've used the word intelligence that, and people think of intelligence as being like us, that the machine's going to accommodate us better. And that just seems like to me like an utter fallacy. There's no evidence of that at all. What we're doing is, if anything, more of the same. We're managing to find, in this case, instead of bits of physical work that we can repeat and automate as we did for machines, we're finding often bits of intellectual work that we can repeat and automate through machines. So it feels very much like the truth is more of the same, but the promise that everyone's making is, no, no, this is going to be different. We're going to have machines in amongst us, just accommodating us, which it feels like there's no evidence for. That's fascinating. So so we are sort of overstating the flexibility of this new wave of automation, you think, when, we, when we're referring to the kind of work that in the public conversation that people feel like artificial intelligence will do. And we're just kind of overblowing this thing that we've seen happen before. I think we're just, we're not even stating it. I think that that's the issue. So it's not so much we're overstating it, but we're using terminology that implies sort of implies to people something that won't happen. So I, I give an example, one of the big recent papers in diagnostics with basically a neural network, continually throughout its paper refers to the neural network they built as an AI system. Now, I don't think that they're doing that to necessarily misrepresent 
but it does misrepresent because if you say an AI system, it implies that there's some sort of, well, the word intelligence means something to sort of people who are not even lay people, but say doctors, domain experts, that is a bit more than, oh, I've got a functional neural network model where I give it some input and it will give me an output. They don't think of that. So if you're using terms like that, you're encouraging them to believe that the system you built is somehow significantly different from what's gone before. And I don't see any evidence of that. For me, it's computers and statistics and you know the fallibility of these systems is similar to fallibilities we've had in the past or perhaps but perhaps it's harder to understand when those problems are occurring so in that sort of zone of the uh, area where there's a gap in understanding people are filling it with bits and pieces that come from a notion of intelligence which is associated with our intelligence and is just absolutely not present in these these artificial systems. Uh, so I don't think it's so much that people are overstating it, but they're conforming to a narrative and a very natural narrative that occurs when you start using the term AI and people aren't highlighting this challenge. So people's expectations of what's going to be delivered, I think is quite different from what will actually happen, which will lead to challenges we've seen in the past, the same type of challenges we've seen in the past, where you have some automated system, but in reality, there's a large number of humans working around that system to ensure it can work. And an existing example would be the extent to which, say, voice agents, whoever's intelligent agent, whether it's Siri, Alexa, or Google's, are reliant on human labor to label data for them. So there's an enormous amount of tedious work for humans producing this labeled data in a form which the computer can consume in order that the computer can emulate that type of behavior. Now, you might say, well, and once that's been done once, the nice thing is we don't have to do it again multiple times. And that's true. But all you've created is a machine that can repeat that task. It, it can't do sort of general flexible intelligent things. It doesn't go, hang on, actually, maybe I shouldn't be responding to the voice right now. Perhaps uh, the real thing you want me to do is say, hang on a minute, you sound stressed. Allow me to tell you to sit down and have a cup of tea. It's not going to do that, right? So our own, the narratives that we're using around these ideas are perhaps setting ourselves up for disappointed expectations. So should we, should we start? What language would you recommend it depends on which subfield you're in. I think the closer people are to the AI field and the more they've deployed it themselves, the better their capacity to understand the problems. But in the wider population, yeah, that promise is, it's, as I say, it's not being explicitly made, but it's sort of implicit in the use of terminology. And I think there's there's very many reasons why that won't happen. I think it's a really interesting question in how you would build such a thing. And I'd don't want to suddenly turn it into a conversation around artificial general intelligence, because I think that that's also a separate thing. There's a danger of blundering into this. Actually, and I think some professionals are doing it as well. Some of the conversations you hear from uh, researchers who are doing extremely good work and doing things that we didn't dream we would be able to do some number of years ago, uh, like in translation or transcription or image recognition, believe that this means something more about what we've achieved in intelligence. And, and it basically doesn't. These are all perception tasks. What's interesting is the boundaries to which we've been able to push them. So I don't think I would have 
necessarily known 10 years ago the quality of machine translations we would have got from what is basically a mapping, an input to output mapping, without having a core intelligence underlying this thing. And it is interesting to what extent those those mappings are generating representations which represent things that are quite human. So GPT-2, I think interactions with GPT-2 are kind of extraordinary for the humanity of some of the responses. Of course, there's significant weaknesses in those interactions too, the lack of structure, the lack of conforming to any real-world narrative in the longer term. But the direct one-to-one responses are quite extraordinary. Now, I think all those things are amazing, but they don't imply that we've got this very adaptable intelligence that is capable of responding in sensible ways to situations that were utterly unconceived of before the system was deployed, which is what you have in effect with natural intelligences. Nice. Yeah, exactly. So so maybe we need to think of these these tools and be excited when we see moving the needle around flexibility. And perhaps we're we're over-indexing on this word intelligence. And maybe we just need like a an, an internal cultural shift that hopefully would then sort of sift out to the people who are using these tools and this understanding that the the great strides that we're seeing around this is in the way that we have increasingly made automated tasks more and more flexible, but the ultimate flexibility is is an intelligence, right? But can you even ever get there? Yeah, I think what you were saying is that what we've, at one level, we've driven forward with the flexibility of the tasks we can achieve. So we've made great strides forward in tasks that were perceived to be difficult or impossible before in bringing them within the bounds of our capabilities. But that's not the same thing as producing an entity that given a range of tasks is capable of adapting in a task-specific way according to context. Now, of course, we can build intelligent agents around that, around our increased flexibility by trying to switch between tasks as we feel is appropriate. But that's not the same thing as what we are, which is an entity that's evolved in this very unpredictable world where anything can happen and it tends to be robust to those different things. Um, All of these components we've designed are designed with a particular objective in mind. I was actually, I was a bit shocked by, there was a tweet from Richard Dawkins about eugenics and it just said the most ridiculous thing that I thought these ideas had, people had really understood why this was such a broken idea. Dawkins said that, of course, there's evidence eugenics works because we're able to breed horses and sheep. And the reply, I saw it, someone else had shared it. And of course, they'd made the great point. Johannes Jaeger, uh, who's an old collaborator of mine, you need to define what you mean by works. And the the fallacy of these people, I mean, this, the the naivety, the I mean, I find it horrific. It is it is part of some techno-utopia idea. And I thought that this had died out sort of 80 years ago. But the problem with that notion is that there's, if you are going to carry out a breeding program of animals, you have to have some notion of fitness in your head, which you're selecting for. Now, that implies you have some objective, that you have some knowledge of what's right. And all the systems we build at the moment are built with objective functions baked in. Natural systems never had that, and they don't have a notion of some objective. Of course, they fail. 
and the ones that fail, we don't see them anymore. So there's some criteria by which they're being selected, but it's moving so rapidly and it's so hard to tell what it is. So the uh, the arrogance that we can second guess what that should be for the future is, uh, I mean, I think it's just the ultimate, it's astounding. It's the ultimate in foolhardiness. And it's not just, I think that Dawkins may have highlighted that there are religious reasons against doing this and moral reasons. No, there's sound scientific reasons against doing it as well. The idea that there's some sort of separation between people's morals and good science, I think is an extremely dangerous one. It's a, a sensible common sense instinct, which is actually borne out in practice that having human beings make those type of decisions is a bad idea. Now, of course, that's a horror from the past. And people, I hope, aren't suggesting such things with the AI systems we're deploying today. But the same fundamental fallacy is embedded into the AI systems that we're producing in that they have embedded objective functions. And we choose those objective functions as best we can in order to make them perform and very often perform better than a human will on that specific task. But actually, the human isn't optimizing an objective function to complete that task. The human is just an entity that has continued to exist by selection bias over many millennia. So it's remarkable that it does so well on these tasks in the first place when it wasn't explicitly trying to optimize for them. And the idea that the technology we have, which is to deploy such optimized entities in and amongst humans, and we won't find flaws in the objective functions we've used is, is a nonsense. And, and, and that's what I see as the great AI fallacy. Fascinating. It is so important, I think, to to focus on these things and think about how these ideas get sort of grow organically and then sort of seep into the language that we use and motivate the way that we talk about things and how those understandings can grow without really our examining them. So I think it's I think it's a really interesting idea, Neil, and I'd love to hear about it more as you keep working on it. You can find out more about The Great AI Fallacy and Neil's thinking around it on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So Neil, this week's listener question on Talking Machines is about federated learning. It's, it's pretty foundational. Our listener writes, I've been seeing federated learning everywhere, all over the place. But to be honest, I don't really understand how it's moving the needle. Is it really just taking a look at siloed data across a variety of physical objects or holders for those data? Is this really as interesting for privacy questions as people seem to say? How can I understand how the needle is being moved? So, Neil, let's let's start with a a basic definition. What what is federated learning? I felt like at NeurIPS this year, I kind of saw it everywhere from the industrial partners. That's interesting. So, a long time ago, before it was called federated learning, I was working with a partner, and we were concerned with privacy, and we wanted to come up with a way of making predictions for their users without sharing their data. So we came up with the idea of having a part of the algorithm that deployed on people's phones and passed up statistics to a more centralized algorithm that never saw the data, but 
saw perhaps the predictions. And we didn't call it federated learning and we didn't publish on it or anything else. And I think, so my full, my understanding is really that this is what was then termed federated learning by some researchers at Google, which is a much better name than giving a long description. I don't think we had a name for it. We just thought it was a sensible thing to do. So it shows that naming things is sensible. The other really interesting thing is you you mentioned the industry people spoke about it a lot. And I, I have to say, I haven't been closely studying the literature on federated learning. So I can't claim to be an expert, but it makes a lot of sense to me that it should be causing much more excitement than in, in industry than it is in academia, because you just don't have access to the need. It's one of those challenges that emerges when you've got a large number of users with devices. And it just becomes, it's obvious for so many reasons. I mean, you could do it for the compute reason. You're, you're leveraging their devices to give you some compute. Um, but you might also want to do it for privacy reasons. So the type of setup you might want is, uh, let's say you're training a neural network, then you've got uh, versions of that neural network distributed on everyone's phone. And they've got their own data, and somehow you want them to do their own stochastic gradient descents updates on each of their phones and be able to pull all those updates together to get some centralized model updated, which you then redistribute. Something like that would be a classic thing. And I think that there is an algorithm called that, which, which does that, which I think just averages the stochastic gradient descent update in some way. And... That seems like it's a sensible thing that could work in, you know, heuristically. But I think people have started studying that as well. My memory is I've seen talks where people look at the theory of that. Now, beyond that, you still have to be careful because that's not giving you full privacy. That's giving you an ability to use all this compute you have. And, and bear in mind that people are going to be putting all these chips on phones. So this compute's just going to go up. But the sort of thing you might want to do beyond that is then ensure that these updates you're getting from each individual phone, which can be seen as a set of statistics about the data on the phone, are not revealing information about individuals' data. So we could, I can give you examples where they would be. If you were doing this with a linear model, and then you were trying to do stochastic gradient descent updates with the linear model, you could reverse engineer the form of the data from the gradient that each phone passed back. If each phone then just passed back the gradient that it was going to use to update its weights, then actually in this case, this example of summing all the stochastic gradient updates into one and doing that as an update does work because in this case, you're just distributing the computation of the gradient update to each phone. You distribute them the weight vector, then they're each doing their update according to the data they've seen. But from the gradient update they're going to use, I could reverse engineer what their data point looks like or characteristics of their data point without too much trouble. So if, you're, if I'm doing that in a deep neural network, it's not going to be so clear that the updates are revealing direct information, but they may be revealing some information about what's going on in each individual's phones. So now differential privacy comes in. And uh, Borja de Balapijem, for example, who worked with me at Amazon, he was someone who was looking at differential privacy of stochastic gradient descent updates. I think uh, he was building on work by researchers at Google. And the need there is to sort of say that the update that you're now going to share, that's going to be the shared thing. How do you ensure that that's not giving away information about the data? So what you're starting to see, and I think you know, large corporates are taking this idea extremely seriously, that you distribute 
the learning across people's devices. You do the algorithmic update on device, and then the, the statistics you send back, the information you send back centrally updates some centralized model, which you can potentially then redistribute to all users. But you need to prove that the statistics you're getting feeding into that central model are not sort of breaking user privacy issues. And so people are suggesting differential privacy as that. And, and that's my... I should say, as a, as a non-expert, that's where I, I am with understanding the broad area of what's going on in federated learning. I'm sure there's a number of different things you could also be doing in that space to enhance privacy, uh, but I do know big corporates are doing the thing I just described. Nice, interesting. So, so more of an more of an industrial problem than perhaps an, an foundational academic area for for research and exploration and really with like close ties into thinking about the larger questions around distributed privacy and how that can be achieved. I think it is one of these areas that is foundational, but, you know, and it was a major reason to go to industry because my belief was that many of the foundational areas were going to ship to the industrial deployment. And And in fact, this gap is now the major challenge because I think it is a foundational really important probably it's something that's practical but brings up really important foundational questions and the question is are we going to just rely on the researchers at industry labs to be addressing them and if we're doing that we end up with a position where only certain players who can afford you know the very best researchers will make progress so yeah it, it it's this sort of new world where once you deploy machine learning the the really interesting problems actually shift from being the academic problems to the ones that uh, are sort of emerging at the interface between academia and industry and you know so far i you know we're getting a lot a lot of awareness of what they're doing in these companies so that's great but yeah i wouldn't say it's not foundational i'd but i'd say it's representative of this this new fault line where all the interesting stuff, where a lot of the interesting stuff is happening. Yeah, absolutely. You can find out more about Federated Learning on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS on Twitter. This week's guests on Talking Machines are Ross Goodwin and Oscar Sharp, and they are the creative team behind the short film Sunspring. And when we first got to talk to them, it was way back for TEDx Boston, which was all about artificial intelligence and machine learning. But recently, we got to catch up with them and ask them about what they're doing now. And we started by asking them the same question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Wow, that's a long story, isn't it? Let's see what the short version is. I'm a filmmaker, I guess, kind of in quotes, filmmaker. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm an odd, odd person who likes stories and magical things and strange things and things that people have never seen before. I guess that's an artist, actually, isn't it? It's someone who tries to go to the edge of the map and sees what's off the edge of it. And yeah, I was making films in uh, the UK for a long time, uh, sort of short films and, and the like, and teaching it to kids. And then while I was doing that, while I was sort of trying to ask myself, what hasn't really been done? What haven't we tried? What's, what's new?
new. And also, I was trying to understand what on earth is a film anyway? What is a story? Why are we telling these things? Because if I had to explain them to kids, I sort of felt I had to understand them well. And as part of that, as a sort of, you know, kid who dismantles radios to see how they work mentality, I decided I wanted to try and dismantle storytelling and film and um, started doing experiments involving making lists of actions for actors to perform by rolling dice and that sort of thing. And the more I got into this, the more I thought, wow, wouldn't it be nice if you could make a machine that could do this sort of better than I can, if it can somehow be better than random, what would better than random look like? And every time I met anybody who could program, because I couldn't do anything even vaguely like that, um, I'd grab them by the lapels and demand that they that they explain to me how, or even that they help me um, make something that could, for example, write dialogue. And that usually just scared people off for many years until uh, I got a Fulbright scholarship in film and went to NYU to the grad film program and uh, got off the elevator too early into ITP, where I encountered the sorcerer that is that is Ross Goodwin. No, absolutely. And and Ross, you are integral to this whole thing. So tell same question to you. How did you get where you are? What what led you to the elevator doors opening uh, with Oscar getting off on the wrong floor? Um, what how did you meet cute? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it's funny because I've, I've heard Oscar tell that story so many times and it's, it's just wonderful. And, 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 and there's more to it, actually. You know, there, there's the whole story of how we collaborated. But I guess I'll, I'll tell my story up to that point. So um, I was always, you know, fascinated as a, as a kid with language and writing and also math. And, and they were like competing academic interests for me. So I, I went to MIT undergrad and I actually studied economics, um, although I started out in physics and um, worked for Noam Chomsky for a little while. And he sort of, you know, I guess affected my trajectory in quite a few ways. But, you know, the main one was I, I just I wanted to do social science rather than hard science. And, and, I, and at the time, I thought I wanted to be a political speechwriter, or at least that's what I wanted to do at first when I finished college. And I, I actually got to do it for a little while. So I, I, I interned for Senator, then Senator John Kerry in Boston and then in D.C. And I worked on the Obama campaign in 2008 in Chicago as a writer of letters and emails. And then my first job out of college was actually at the White House writing presidential proclamations, which are like statements of national days, weeks and months of things. And then I went to the Treasury Department to work for Secretary Geithner. And, uh, you know, throughout that time, I was sort of like in the background, like starting to teach myself code because uh, I, I was just fascinated by that entire universe. And I wanted to find a way into it, you know, despite not having focused on it as an undergrad. And I say in like early 2014 or I was I was applying to grad school. I knew I wanted to go to technical grad school you know, or something creative and technical. So as I was applying, I, I started learning Python. And I started at ITP um, at NYU or the Interactive Telecommunications Program in 2014. And I really, you know, from the get-go focused on, uh, at the time, what I thought of as computational creative writing, but which has really been largely labeled as AI in recent years. Although I, I find that term, I, I don't know how you feel about the term AI, but I, I find the term AI really misleading in a lot of ways and, and, and sort of inappropriate. But anyway, so uh, second semester, I, I, I signed up for this class called Surveillance Documentary, uh, which is where we were learning to use pan, tilt, zoom surveillance cameras, uh, the kind that are found just about everywhere these days to make uh, creative projects. I was learning how to program them. Uh, Oscar was learning, you know, um, what were you learning, Oscar? <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, was, I was up on the 10th floor doing my graduate film program. And then, and yeah, we, I was lucky enough to come down and have an official class with you. Yeah, but Oscar and I were both, you know, we, we were similar characters in that class, you know, and, and, and you came in on the, I remember I missed the first class. 
And you had come into the first class asking if anyone was interested in, you know, generating screenplays. And they mentioned my name, I guess, even though I was absent. But, you know, we met in the second class. Yeah. It was it was a funny it was a funny time I remember up on the tenth floor because I I think this is around the time so I'd I'd made a film that was nominated for a BAFTA and it made that it made the life up there quite w weird in ways that are quite hard to capture culturally but yeah I think I think it was exciting to be in this very different environment to be not surrounded with the things I was used to when it came to film and instead to be in this. As, as, as Ross calls it, the insane technology posse, surrounded by sort of robot jellyfish and walls of dildos that follow you around the room. And and, and it was, I, I, walking into this classroom, looking down at Ross's laptop, seeing him it for the first time and seeing that he's just chilling in this class and there is a poem appearing on his screen that is writing itself. And I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> this guy, this guy. You know, it's funny, at the time I was using, you know, like uh, I wasn't really using machine learning yet. You know, when I met Oscar, I was using Markov chains, context-free grammars, you know, older algorithms, you know, not that machine learning is particularly new, more that, you know, these algorithms are like a hundred years old. I, I was I was I was getting somewhere with this stuff, and I think that practitioners now, like Jamie Brew with Botnik, are still using uh, that kind of you know algorithm to great effect. Yeah, you know, I, I was looking for the next step forward uh, beyond like remix, and you know, I guess what I looked at at the time is like uh, choppy, surreal output. You know, not that the first neural net stuff wasn't surreal, uh, more that the Markov chain stuff was was more surreal and required more interpretation, and was more agrammatical too. Right, right, right. It sort of has it's it's kind of the less human English or or more I don't know mystical. <laughs> Is that a word that one can use? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, if you if you ever read Markov chain output, fickle's a good word. I guess you could think of it like a goldfish that loses its memory very quickly, much more quickly than a neural net, which does the same thing eventually. But um, yeah, and and I when I met Oscar, I built you know one. I guess project that had gotten pressed at that point it was this novel generator called Fiction Generator, and it just worked by like remixing novels on Project Gutenberg, and and you had these sliders where you could control different aspects of like the literary qualities of the output. Uh, they were mostly just dummy sliders, but you know what changed when I met Oscar was I started thinking about not only like making you know, text generators and making literary generators or poetry generators. I thought about like, why, <laughs> why, why make these things, you know, to what effect and, um, you know, what's the context, what's the framing because. Oh my God, Ross, that's the nicest yeah. thing. You've Aww. said so many nice things when we've, when we've been in these interviews, but the idea that, that like our collision is making both of us sort of philosophize more is just is delightful to me and and yeah me too well you know it certainly is because I, I remember you know when we first met we were like talking really deeply about like what is a story what is a narrative what is fiction and nonfiction, and we were playing these like you showed me this like storytelling dice game and you know we were just sort of hitting it off and having these really intense intellectual discussions and it was funny. We, we, at that point, we really didn't know how we were going to do this. I, I had some vague ideas that we could structure something uh, or build some algorithm that filled in gaps between a predefined structure, you know, but we, we, I certainly didn't think that there would be a way to just push a button and have a screenplay come out at that point. 
but yeah, no, things changed, obviously. So you guys have, you guys start working together. You guys start thinking together as a collaborative pair, which just sounds, sounds so amazing. And tell me about how, and I think a lot of our listeners have probably seen Sunspring, but tell me a little bit about the background and the, then you guys named the algorithm Benjamin. Is that right? Let's talk about word camera first and then let's talk about Benjamin. So like, so, 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 so basically like in 2015, you know, we were taught, we were having these discussions and, and we got a little bit of money from Google yeah, and we were sort of just like figuring out how to approach this problem. And one of the things Oscar told me, which I, I sort of, I don't know, I probably didn't know this before you told it to me, was that in a screenplay, in action description, you can only describe what can be seen by the viewer. You like can't go into a character's head. And when he told me that, I was just like, well, how do you get an algorithm not to go into a character's head or like do something internal, um, especially if it's trained on more than just screenplays, which at the time we were sort of considering. You know, what occurred to me was like, why not start with a photograph? I, I, at the time I was, I, I was, I went to a hackathon and learned about this Clarify API, which is C-L-A-R-I-F-A-I. I think they're still around, but they, they were doing, they, they released really, I think it was the first image captioning API. And I looked at this and I was like, oh my God, this is a machine that can describe what it sees. It's, it's sort of perceptive in a way. The, the, the possibilities just sort of exploded in my head from there. And what I ended up building, you know, just sort of off the cuff was this thing called word camera, which sort of, you know, used clarify to get an initial set of nouns from the image and then expanded those nouns into like longer sentences using this database called ConceptNet, which was developed at MIT and is like a database of word relationships along with uh, some grammatical rules. So, you know, it, but it was popular, like people really liked it because it could describe them in a way and sort of extrapolate from there. Um, and I built antique, or I, I put a computer inside antique cameras and had it print out the poetry or whatever it was at that point on a receipt printer. So it was like a text Polaroid. And, and I just really loved that whole experience, you know, of making and using the, these devices. I made one that played music, but yeah, I mean, Oscar, maybe you can tell me like what, what your reaction. Yeah, well, that's, it's 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 interesting. Like, so yeah, when 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 Ross makes this thing, you know, I I'd sort of gone, oh, let's let's make a machine that's going to write a screenplay. Instead, he made a camera that wrote poems. And at first, I was like, well, that's that's not what I wanted. And then and then I and then I thought, actually philosophically, to get back to that sort of philosophical framing, this is a really interesting thing that's happened because what Ross has done is he's, he's sort of asked the question, if a picture could write a poem, what poem would it write? If a, if a picture could tell a story, what story would it tell? And in a way, that applies to a huge amount of what we go on to do. I, I, I realized um, just the other day when Ross and I were, were discussing uh, our work with a, with a theater maker, that in a way what Ross does is he, is he gives mouths to things that never had mouths. He, he, and what he did when we made Sunspring is he took a huge pile of science fiction screenplays and put a mouth on it and said, hey mouth, if, if, if this whole pile of screenplays could describe a screenplay, what would it describe? And off it goes, chattering away. And that has been a real intellectual zoom out for me as I've realized that that really that's what so much of this machine learning work is. It sort of says, here's a pile of data. If this pile of data could speak, if it could make more data, what would that data be? Yeah, but we should talk about, we should talk briefly about like how I, you know, so we should we should touch on like that because we haven't really gotten to the machine learning part yet, I just yeah. realized. That's very true. Yes, this, the story goes that Ross has made this thing 
And in the process, he's discovered these machine learning processes, these, these systems that are more effective than the Markov chains at manipulating language. Well, I, I would say that's true. I mean, I, I, I definitely was using like other people's machine learning systems through APIs before I started building my own API being application programming interface. It's the way software talks to itself or talks to other software. But, you know, in, in so after, you know, Oscar, you, you graduated, oh, I guess you went to LA in 2015, right? Uh, approximately, yes. I've completely lost yeah. track, frankly. But something like 2015, you, I've disappeared. You, you left New York for the most part. I didn't see you much. Yeah, I ran, I ran away from you. We tried to make the screenplay. It didn't work the first time. I run away from you because Toby Maguire calls me up and says, hey, it's the old Spider-Man. Why don't you come and write your first feature film? Because, you know, the BAFTA nomination, all that. So there's this whole, I'm having this whole sort of Hollywood life start to emerge. And I guess I have to kind of hang up the ambition to make the world's first film written by a robot, right? Um, and disappear off while Ross is making wizardry with lenses and 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 images that tell poems. And then and then he and then he sends me a poem that I thought was extraordinarily moving and not really of the same quality of output of, of stuff that he'd sent me before that he generated in different ways. And I immediately called him and said, "Can we use this to make?" dialogue for for our screenplay and and he went well we can use it to make the whole screenplay and um yeah that's that's how the that's how sunspring began yeah and that, and that algorithm was a, a long short-term memory recurrent neural network which i started playing with in the summer of 2015 um i tried playing with them after reading andre carpathy's like wonderful you know legendary at this point uh blog post and, you know, he put output in it and he, and he released this code, uh, char RNN on GitHub. And so, like, when I saw that, I started, like, playing with it. And, and not at first. At first, I was like, oh, I'm going to write my own neural net. And that summer, I, I, I literally, you know, spent, I was working, at, interning at a tech startup. And I, I spent my lunches sort of, like, typing out entire neural net implementations and trying to figure out how they worked. And, you know, because of my background in economics and statistics, I mean, I understood, like, a lot of it, a lot more than I probably realized I would when I started looking into them. And so in December 2015, you know, over winter break, um, I really did a deep dive and started training my own LSTMs using CharRNN on New York University's high-performance computing facility, uh, which gave me access to GPUs, which is, you know, what you need, or graphics processing units, which is what you need to use to train these neural nets. And, and I had K80s, which uh, are, were, were at the time uh, NVIDIA's sort of top-of-the-line GPU. They were not available on Amazon Web Services yet in 2015. So in a certain way, that really gave me a leg up on a lot of the other hobbyists who were training CharRNN models. But anyway, yeah, so, you know, fast forward to that. I, I, and that was probably February 2016 after winter break, after that deep dive. Um, I was generating this poetry and some of it was really good. And I, I, and I made a new version of word camera that used models I had trained myself. And I, I took a picture of a clock, which generated a poem that I sent to Oscar because I love Oscar's voice and I wanted him to read it. I didn't have much of a broader ambition beyond that. But as Oscar said, you know, he liked it enough to ask me if I would use that technology to generate a screenplay and we could give this another shot. And of course, I immediately <laughs> agreed. So, you know, that anyway, I think Oscar can pick it up from there. Well, this and this is like literally the way that the way that a film comes together when a film should come together. We I knew that we had not very long before the next 
Sci-Fi London 48-hour film challenge. And that was exciting for me because, so that's a project where every year about hundreds of, hundreds of human filmmakers all try and make films in 48 hours flat, uh, where they have to write the screenplay, shoot the film and edit it in, in, in that time. Um, it's quite a common type of uh, contest around the world, but this one is sci-fi specific. And I thought, well, what better way to try out the first non-human screenwriter than to set it up against a bunch of other ones in a competition, a bunch of human, human screenwriters in a competition. So within literally within 45 minutes of Ross saying, I can try, I'd spoken to Alison Friedman, our producer, um, who'd sort of gone, wow, yes, let's try it. I'd spoken to Thomas Middleditch uh, from Silicon Valley, who I'd met only a few months before and sort of gone, hey, Thomas, do you want to play a wizard? Because I really wanted him to play a wizard. I still do. And then he, he, we'd, we'd kind of been chatting about different ideas and I'd call him up and go, do you want to be in a film written by a robot? He went, of course I do. And so on and so on. We pull it all together in that time. And Ross, of course, is, is training the robot, um, which at the time we're calling Jetson, named after the piece of hard he was using. If you if you look carefully in Sunspring, you will see uh, Jetson Goodwin's name. It's it or is it Ross Jetson? I can't remember. What it is. It's Ross Jetson. Yeah, um, is concealed on the, not particularly heavily concealed on the on the book spine at the beginning of the film. Yeah, that didn't that name it ended up not sticking because after the film was shortlisted in the top ten for that competition, and then a bunch of other weird stuff went down where other people tried to cheat and Ross used machine learning to defeat them, um, which was brilliant. The festival decided that they were going to interview. They they disqualified a bunch of a bunch of people and they were going to interview Jetson as it was called uh, on stage at their award show and sent a, sent a bunch of questions over and, and in one of the answers to one of those questions the output concluded with the ominous phrase my name is Benjamin um, and so we we took it on took that on board um, and decided uh, decided that that this is what the machine wanted to be called <laughs> then we would let it be called that obviously to some extent this was a a sort of bit of playfulness but one that as a storyteller hugely appealed to me it's really the Benjamin project which has now gone on to be four films and is bound to be more things I'm sure so we we subsequently made uh, it's no game and then zone out and then there's a new one on its way called Bobo and girlfriend it's actually it's ready to go but we um we haven't found our release window yet with our distributor dust that that project essentially is Ross and I talking about storytelling and machine learning and what the two things can tell us about each other and and it has been for a bunch of years now and for example in this in that last instance Bobo and Girlfriend Ross trained using a, a, a different system than he he has been before um, a more advanced one purely action screenplays and made a, a generator which which spits out some of the most insanely white hot misogyny I've seen in my life page after page so of course which is no surprise, but also a, a very, for me, a very useful application of the technology. It's a way of essentially doing generative cultural satire, which which is is difficult to difficult to question for its for the typical bias of satire. Although, of course, it has bias because. It, it, we just we put a pile of screenplays in. It spat out a bunch of stuff, and that stuff it spat out had eighty percent male characters and twenty percent actually I think it's eighty three percent male characters, and just sort of most of it is spent with those characters, the male characters being violent and the women characters getting assaulted and and sort of apologising and crying a lot. Um, and it's and it's uh, heartbreaking and 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 sort of invigorating that this technology can help us see that. Yeah, and I, I would say sort of like when I've trained on hip hop lyrics it reminded me of that because when you train on rap you know there's a lot of slurs in rap obviously and you know it's a complicated history and you know there are you know not all the slurs in rap are meant to be offensive for example but the, my, my point being that like 
when you train on it and it, and you don't filter those things, the slurs, you know, come out in the output and decontextualized and without sort of the human structure that sort of, you know, puts these words into context in the narrative of a human written rap piece, they become like instantly like very offensive or very offensive seeming, um, at least to like, you know, at first glance. So to me that like misogyny and the, 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 the sort of treatment of women in the action screenplay generator output it had sort of the same it had sort of the same impact on me in that I had the same feeling about it I did about those hip hop lyrics. It just seemed like decontextualized the anti the anti feminism and the um, the misogyny was just so much worse than than it usually is. And even though it's bad in action movies, it just seemed you know like it was just distilled in some horrible way. <laughs> um, not that you know some of the output from this model is quite. Nice, by the way, that, you know, it's, it's not all white hot misogyny, but the amount of it is quite disturbing, um, you know, from action, from this action screenplay corpus. And we didn't expect that either. You know, we, it was sort of just uh, an emergent property of the output. But I wanted to touch on one thing about Benjamin before we totally leave that behind, which is that you know, the complicated thing in the years after Sunspring for us uh, has been like, you know, kind of wrestling with the fact that we named it Benjamin. Because as time has gone on, and as we've sort of talked more about AI, um, at least personally, and I think you agree with me on this, Oscar, I don't think like robots should have human names. I, I really don't think it's a good idea. I, I think that when we do that, we're sort of like lying to the public in a way about the sophistication of the machine and how it works and sort of telling a story that, you know, oversimplifies everything and kind of forces people in a way to personify these machines, to to view them through a very anthropocentric lens. It, and, and it's just problematic as time goes on because it cheapens real human interaction and it, it makes us treat each other worse, I think, in a way. Um, you know, a lot of people really, you know, do not say nice things to their uh, digital assistants. And I guess, you know, you hear these sort of people kicking self-driving cars and like kicking, you know, maintenance robots when they see them. And it's it, people have a very some people have a very strong reaction to to AI in general. But then when it's human shaped, it reminds us of all these sci fi nightmare stories we've been told over the years. There's this growing and persistent conflation between artificial intelligence as it exists in science fiction and artificial intelligence as it exists in reality. And the problem with that is mostly that like we can think so much broader, like beyond human forms and, and to sort of assume that the human form is the most ideal and, and most perfect form and that all robots, the perfect robot has like two legs and two arms and two eyes and a mouth and a nose and like is bipedal and, you know, does all the things that we do. I just think it's very short sighted and also, um, you know, a little dangerous as time goes on because we're sort of like reenacting these science fiction stories that were not meant to be prescriptions. They were meant to be warnings or mirrors more accurately of the times in which they were written. Human shaped robots in science fiction stories from the 60s are not really about robots at all. They're about human labor and, you know, the, the dehumanization of, 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 of working class labor. It's not about automation. So, you know, the truth is that, I, I think anyway, is, is, is that AI can take on, or AI machine learning, um, can take on such a broader set of forms and 
and functions than we have really thus far imagined. And I guess what I'm trying to do as an artist and what I, what I hope I'm doing with Oscar and you know, what, what I hope that our movies have helped do in a little way is suggest a, not, not necessarily a more ambitious future with respect to machine learning and AI, but you know, a, a, a more objective one, uh, one that you know, is, is more in touch with the sort of nature of our existence as uh, you know, uh, floating on a mode of dust in this you know, vast expanse. It's, it's not really uh, our job to be, I mean, th th there is a race toward you know, artificial general intelligence. Um, we have to acknowledge that and we have to question it. Not that it shouldn't be happening necessarily, but like what direction is that race going in? What's the default? And like, what it, where is that taking us? Um, because, you know, in science fiction, the robots always kill us all. And, and that just is the case because it makes a better story. Um, the reality is probably a lot more complicated. Fascinating. You guys, it's been so, so wonderful to be able to chat with you. Thank you so much for the time. Oh, we're really glad. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Catherine. Oscar Sharp and Ross Goodwin. Well, that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. Tune in next episode. <laughs>